hope you've enjoyed my singing from the front row this morning. I had made a little plan between me and myself to not sing, save all my voice for preaching. And uh, I didn't do that. Uh, I just wanted to sing. So let us pray that there's voice left uh, for the next few moments together. Let me just say something to you, church. A lot of people are sick this week. A lot of people have been sick uh, the last couple of weeks. Uh, there have been more people in our church get COVID in the past two and a half weeks than the past two years combined. Easily, uh, easily. There are, uh, someone sent me an email this week asking, can I send a card to a few of the people who are sick right now that I could just send them a get well card? I sent them a list, emailed her back a few days later with some more, and emailed her back again this morning with some more. Uh, so I just want to encourage you, uh, persevere, endure. Uh, God is not surprised. We might be surprised again and again and again by sickness. God is not surprised. Uh, God doesn't look down and go, man, I can't believe COVID is ruining my plans. Uh, God's doing all kinds of things, even through the season of sickness. So let me just encourage you to endure, love one another. Uh, and pray through this season. It looks like, according to the, uh, the chart at uh, austin.gov, which uh, I have no reason to doubt are accurate numbers, uh, looks like we're downtrending uh, right now. So uh, I keep thinking we're done with this, this is over, and code keeps telling me that we are not done. Uh, so here we are, uh, continuing patience and, and trusting the Lord. What's, what's in your gut? What's down in your gut? Now, in my house, we have to define what we mean by gut. I, was, I read a book a few years ago on the intestinal gut, a gut that I would have never read, I don't think, had I not married uh, the woman that I did who has introduced me into a whole new vocabulary and uh, idea of what it means to be a healthy human being physically. I mean your spiritual gut. What's down in there? When something happens in your life, what's the first reaction? Or maybe a better question, what's the last reaction when you get down in there? What's the last taste in your mouth when something goes the wrong way? When your boss gives someone else a promotion that you think maybe you deserved, a promotion that it goes exactly against their, their charts for the year. How do you feel when your little brother or sister gets away with something that you knew they did wrong? How do you feel about your political candidate losing an election on losing their, their election on a sketchy voting campaign? I'm not talking about who you think I'm talking about. Trust me. I'm talking about Brent Webster, the current first assistant attorney general. And Brent's children all went through the uh, preschool here at Millwood with our kids for several years. In 2016, Brent ran for uh, the a, a judge office on the Texas Court of Appeals who campaigned hard. I was eager to vote for him, uh, knowing him, trusting him personally. At the same time, in 2016, there was a man named Scott Walker who was the governor of Wisconsin. Scott Walker, you may remember that year, made a run for the presidency. That Scott Walker was 49 years old. And he was running for the president at the same time that a man who's 63 years old here in Texas was running for the same judge, for the same Texas Court of Appeals seat as Brent Webster. Needless to say, given that Brent campaigned so hard and Scott Walker campaigned almost zero, you have to wonder if some people didn't vote for a Texas judge thinking that he was actually a Wisconsin governor. What if... What if that was to the, the case? Would that bother you? Do, you? do you think that ate up at Brent a little bit? I know that it did. I know that it concerned me. It made me wonder. Would it made you wonder even more if you knew that the judge's name isn't really Scott Walker. It's actually Richard Scott Walker. But his name was placed as Scott Walker on the top of the ballot. Would that make you think differently? Just make you wonder. Man, should, shouldn't this be his election? Shouldn't, this be, shouldn't Brent be the one up there? This, this doesn't make any sense. What's in your gut? What comes out in those moments? Moments when you feel like something we deserve is withheld from us. 
Something that someone else does not deserve is given to them. And those moments have such a way of revealing what's really down in our hearts. We've been looking last week, encouraging you to read along the book by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly, coming out of this verse in Matthew chapter 11, that Jesus says about himself, I am gentle and lowly at heart. And last week we talked about how that is Jesus' heart. When you, when you get down in Jesus' gut, in his, in his bowels, in his, in his heart of hearts, he is gentle and lowly. He doesn't just do gentle and lowly things. He actually is gentle and lowly, truly. And today we're going to see how we, we look at that, and then as Christians we are called to be the same way. Put on. Paul says in Colossians 3, we'll see later this morning, Paul says to put on compassionate hearts. Have the same kind of heart, humble and meek, as Christ. What ought to come out of our gut more and more and more as we grow and walk with Jesus is the same stuff that comes out of Jesus' gut, out of his heart, out of his chest, his soul. That's what we ought to be pursuing, what we ought to want and what we ought to long for, but, but we're not always there. What's that look like, to live like that, to be like that? How can we get there? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus Christ, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for this passage read for us this morning, just reminding us that it's not us who come to you with works, it's you who have died on the cross for our sins. As we look at this and think about this and apply it to our own hearts, help us to grow in it even now. Help our hearts to be changed over and warmed over by your love for us that we might be that way towards others. All for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we saw in Matthew chapter 11, a verse that we saw last week that Marilyn read for us again this morning. Jesus said of himself, I am gentle and lowly at heart. And we gave the context a lot more attention last week than we will this week. And I think, though, that we can even take this out as a statement of itself because Jesus is making a statement about himself. It's, a, it's an always, ever true statement about Christ. I am this way. Introducing his book, Dane Ortland says this about this passage. My dad pointed out to me something that Charles Spurgeon pointed out to him. In the four gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. And he says, I am gentle and lowly at heart. What does it mean that Jesus is gentle and lowly at heart? Dane helps us in his book a great deal. He says the Greek word translated gentle here occurs just three times in the New Testament. The other places that we see this in the New Testament are Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. The first Beatitude is that the meek, that is the same word for gentle, will inherit the earth. In the prophecy in Matthew chapter 21, 5, when Jesus is coming in, into Jerusalem, he is coming to you humble Humble, gentle, mounted on a donkey. A physical description of his gentle heart. And Peter's encouragement to wives to nurture more than anything else the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. 1 Peter 3, 4. The words we see are, are, are gentle. It's a word group, meek, humble. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary. Dane helps us with this. Easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe, Ortland says. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. This is hard to believe. This is really who Jesus is. The most natural posture to him is not a pointed finger, finger but open arms. And the word in lowly means nearly the same thing. It so overlaps with gentle that together it's communicating one single reality about Jesus' heart. What's down there is gentle and lowly. 
Here's a, here's a definition, I think, of what it means for Jesus to be gentle and lowly in this passage. Jesus' gentleness, his lowliness at heart is the welcoming disposition which indicates God's love towards sinful man. The welcoming disposition of Christ, his gentleness and lowliness is his welcoming disposition. That's what he's like towards sinners, indicating God's love towards sinful men. I want to be careful. Hear this important distinction. The welcoming disposition which indicates God's love towards sinful mankind. Now, why would I say Jesus being gentle and lowly indicates God's love for sinful mankind? Why not say that they are synonymous? Why not say gentle and lowly equals God's love or gentle and lowly equals the gospel? Because that's not the entirety of what gentle and lowly means. Gentle and lowly, for example, that that heart of Christ, that welcoming disposition, it's not the final decision regarding the judgment of each individual. That comes by election. It comes by faith. Gentle and lowly at heart is not the application of atonement to believers. A kind disposition in Christ without blood for sin does not save. Gentle and lowly is not the security of the believer That comes by the sealing of the Holy Spirit when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And also I say Jesus being gentle and lowly indicates God's love because if you refuse to come to Christ who welcomes you in gentleness and lowliness, if you refuse to trust him, there is, as Jesus said to Bethsaida and Chorazin, there is judgment. There is no remission of sins because you rejected the gentle and the lowly Christ who was crucified for you. Gentle and lowly is the heart of Christ, his welcoming disposition toward repentant and broken sinners so that even when Jesus is pronouncing and calling out judgment on those who reject him, he does so in woeful and mournful terms. We saw this last week in Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew 23. Jesus pronounced on who disbelieved him when he came to do signs among them. Woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin. I came gentle and lowly to you, he means, but you did not repent. That was Jesus' point to the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, Jerusalem. I came gentle and lowly to you. I would have gathered you like a hen gathers its brood under its wings, but you wouldn't come. The gentleness and lowliness of Christ is not the final decision about our salvation. Just because he is gentle and lowly does not mean that we are secured and saved. It is his disposition to welcome us and to call us to himself. And it's an indication his gentleness and lowliness toward us sinners who deserve God's wrath is an indication of God's love for us which saves us through Christ on the cross. Behind Jesus' gentleness and lowliness is God's love himself. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, 21-22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You used to be hostile in mind. You used to be doing evil deeds. But now he's reconciled. You weren't nice. You weren't friendly. You didn't love God. You were hostile in mind before you came to Christ. In your sin, in your life, you were hostile to God. But he loves anyway by providing Jesus on the cross for our sins. Romans 5, 6, where we read this morning, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. You can barely get someone to die for someone that we actually think is a good person. You can barely get someone to sign up for that. Perhaps maybe for a good person, someone actually lay down their life. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, before we had come to him, while we were still playing in the sin mud pit over here, he loved us then. He loves us how we are. He just loves because he's loving. 
and Christ coming, his life, his ministry, his miracles, his death on the cross, it's all displaying and manifesting his love, God's love in Christ for sinners. The cross where Jesus died it is God's love for us, him paying the price for us, him spilling the blood so that our sins would be washed away. I want you to hear this today, sinner. I want you to hear this today. I mean, well, just think about what, how, you, how your week's been. Just think about how you're doing. Think about your sin. Just think for a minute about the, the people that, mm, uh, maybe you're not so real pumped about them right now. Maybe you've got sin that's old, old sin. And it's a long time ago, but you are pretty sure God is still mad at you about that. You ever have those relationships where someone's maybe told you, you kind of heard they feel good, but even you, you can, listen, I've, I've been there in marriage. You can sit on the couch next to a single, next to that person that you're in covenant with and love with, but you can feel like a thousand miles away. Maybe you're there with God. Yeah, I know. I'm like, I'm at church today. I'm watching online. I'm, 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 I'm there. But really, I just think he's still mad at me. I just think he's the parent that, that caught me coming home late, and his face is red, and his voice is stern. That's the only way I think about God. Let me just tell you. God's not mad at you. His heart is love toward you. Christ is gentle and lowly. His disposition is welcoming, calling. The first word where Jesus explains he's going to give rest and that you can come to him, his whole point is come. Come to me. Take my yoke on your shoulders and I'll give you rest. You, you come to me. I'm gentle and lowly heart. You can really come. You really will be forgiven of your sin. Friends, it's not those who come to Christ who have something to fear. It's those who reject Christ who have no payment for their sin, who have no welcome before God. God is saying, to us in Jesus Christ, come to me. I love you. I've paid for your sins. This is great. God's not up there going, well, kids made a mess again. I got to clean this up. So let's send Jesus down there and deal with this. Now, he actually loves us. And he's gentle and lowly at heart in Christ. To come to see this and believe this is what it means to be a Christian. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Liking certain church organizations doesn't make you a Christian. Believing, trusting, loving that welcomes you as a sinner is what it means to be a Christian. To, to change in your mind and your heart from... <clears throat> I don't know how God will receive me. If I even go to him, I don't even know what he would do with me. Or from believing God would never receive me. God, God is tolerating me and, and God's kind of allowing me to hang around without, you know, without lightning striking me, but he doesn't really love me. Now, that's what it means to be a Christian is to go from those things to know God does love me and I know that he loves me. And I know that he calls me to himself and welcomes me into himself because Jesus died on the cross for my sin. He displayed his love. He made his love known. I thought about not putting this in there, so I'm going to try to make this really quick because I took it out of my notes. If you've ever read this book, Five Love Languages, or heard of this book, Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman, I don't recommend this book. Maybe it's not the worst. I haven't read it in a long time. But here, here's how we've turned that book in, how, how we have a, the, the modern self-identity, self-autonomy culture has, it, you know, at very best taken a, a good book and made it worse. 
is the idea that I define myself and I define love and I decide how I'm going to be loved. Instead of trying to discover, what I think Gary Chapman was trying to get at was you discover your spouse's love language, we weaponize our love languages against one another. Don't you know my love language is touch, babe? Don't you know my love language is gifts? Why aren't you speaking my language? That, that has got 20th century personal relative autonomy all over it. You love me like I define love. And I think a lot of times we're, we're confused with God. We're lost with God. We feel far from God because we don't think God speaks our love language. We don't think God gets what's going on in my life. God's not doing the things I want to do. God's not giving me the things I'm asking for. He's not giving me the parking spot. He's not getting rid of cancer. He's not giving me more money. He's not giving me a bride. Or he's not giving me a baby. He's not loving me. God's love language is Christ. It is Jesus on the cross for you. You don't have to go through your life wondering, does God really love me? You don't have to do that. Don't be frustrated by that. That's a lie. God has demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he doesn't hold that in a kind of a, over our heads. Which I, I sent Jesus to die for you. You need to get in order and believe in Jesus. No, it's a gentle and lowly welcome coming to me. I want you to come. God, really, I, I stood it. I didn't, I didn't stand because I wasn't preaching. I was sitting middle back here for a funeral here eight days ago. One of my dear friends, Randy Moore, was preaching his own grandmother's funeral. And there was just a, a moment in that service that stood out to me. Randy just stopped in the middle of us. I don't even know what else he was talking about. I probably wasn't paying very good attention, not very good example for my own church. And Randy just stopped and he looked, he stopped and he looked at me just, I just want you to know, listen, God loves you. And he just said it. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to, you don't have to categorize it. You don't have to, you don't have to keep adding to it. You just, God really does love you. Come to him. Confess your sin. He will receive you because Christ is gentle and lowly at heart. And his gentleness and his lowliness is indicative of God's love for you from heaven. When we come to believe in Christ, the goal is that it doesn't just save us, it starts to change us. It starts to make us more like him. The goal is that we too start to see sinners and we start to see people the way Jesus sees them. We welcome, we, we are to have an increasingly Christ-like disposition toward people who wrong us, toward sinners, and increasingly welcoming gentle, lowly heart. That's now, if you're a Christian, you're following Christ, that's not our goal. That, that's now our goal. It's not, thank you for the ticket. It's, I'm so overwhelmed with God's love for me, and I'm changed by His Spirit, that that's now what I love too. And it's not always easy. It's not always easy to love like that. It's not always easy to be gentle and lowly. We're not perfect yet. We're not like Christ yet. We're in this process, this Tencent word we call sanctification. We're, we're being made. We're holy. But there are some things that can get in the way, some fundamental things that if we don't understand and address these things, it will be in the way of our being gentle and lowly to others. Matthew chapter 8 through 10, Jesus starts going through Judea, healing, helping the blind see, raising little girls from the dead, helping lepers be cleansed. 
Find out in chapter 11, they didn't really buy it. Woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin. The signs that had been done among you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have repented a long time ago, but you didn't. Woe to you. There's going to be worse judgment for you on the last day than for Sodom. They didn't receive it. But then Jesus explains in our passage, Matthew 11, but, but I am gentle and lowly at heart. Come, and I'll give you rest for your souls. I'm gentle and lowly at heart. But just as Matthew states that Jesus is gentle and lowly, there begins a running theme through the next chapter and through the rest of the book, really, that recounts how some people responded to Jesus' welcoming of sinners. The format goes like this, <coughs> excuse me, through chapter 2, or chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 2, as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus allowed the hungry to eat. But then we hear this phrase, but the Pharisee, when the Pharisees saw it. Chapter 12, verse 14, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, but when the Pharisees went out. Chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus cast out a demon in that chapter, but when the Pharisees heard it. When Jesus allowed food, Jesus heals man, Jesus cast out a demon, but when the Pharisees heard it, what was in their gut? What was in their heart about Christ and about those whom Jesus was giving himself to? Pick up in chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. Matthew 12, 1 through 8, just kind of really one example of Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees. Marilyn read this for us. Let's read it again. Matthew 12, 1 through 8. And at that time, right after Jesus pronounced himself to be gentle and lowly, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. <clears throat> His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of David and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat or for those who were with him, but only the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple, profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? And Jesus' point here, and his point largely through Matthew, is something's greater than the temple is here. I'm, I'm over all of these things. But we, we keep seeing, everywhere Jesus seems to go and he seems to encounter the Pharisees, you, you see this, Jesus sees hungry people who need to be fed. And the Pharisees see religious laws being broken. The Pharisees were upset for all kinds of reasons. They believed Jesus claimed himself to be God, which was punishable by death. They saw Jesus claiming that he was greater than Moses. They believed Jesus was constantly breaking the law of Moses, as here. Matthew is chronicling all the ways the Pharisees rejected Jesus, eventually and formally accusing him of blasphemy before Pilate. Why? What's in the Pharisees' gut? Why? Why, why aren't they happy that Jesus is gentle and lowly and receiving and welcoming to sinners? I think Jesus gives us his answer. He does kind of an exegesis on the Pharisees, if you will, in Luke chapter 15. Go with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Just explain the phrase, exegesis of the Pharisees. Jesus did a study of the Pharisees. He looked into their hearts, he picked it apart, he saw what was in there. <laughs> Luke 15 verse 1. We're not going to read all of it, but we do want to see here that Jesus, uh, as other occasions in Matthew, is having an encounter with the Pharisees. And how he responds to them is revealing about what's in their hearts. Luke 15, verse 1 through 2, a common scene in Jesus' ministry. <clears throat> now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, you hear this? But the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled instead, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now from here, Jesus goes to tell three stories. We, we may... or may not, doesn't matter, really call them parables. The first is the story of the sheep. There was a lost sheep. Of course, the shepherd went to find the sheep. When he brought the sheep back, everyone rejoiced. And even the angels in heaven rejoiced, just like this when a sinner comes to repentance. And then Jesus tells the story of a lost coin. There's a woman. She loses a coin. 
She searches for it all over the house. She finds the coin. She gets all of her friends together and says, I found the coin, and everyone rejoices. We found the coin. Jesus is just like that. When a sinner repents, heaven rejoices. And then he tells this longer story, which may be more familiar to you all, about the prodigal son. There's this father who has two sons, and the younger of the sons comes and says, Dad, I'll, I'll just take my inheritance now. We go ahead and get the equity out of this estate. I'll, I'll take it and be on my way. He goes into a distant country. He wastes it on prostitutes. He finds himself poor, having nothing, doing work in the, the pigsty, so hungry, wishing he could eat the food that the pigs were eating. I mean, that for a Jew, this is as low as it gets. You've dishonored your father. You're hanging out with pigs. And then we see the relationship between the younger son and the father. What's the father going to actually say about this? In Luke chapter 15, we see the father's heart revealed just like we saw in Matthew 11. Look at uh, Luke chapter 15. Pick up in verse 17. But when he came to himself, that's the son, (coughs) he realized how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread. But I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now just tuck this back in your mind. Is he thinking rightly about his father? Does he know his dad? Verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And Jesus speaking, this is heaven's heart for sinners. This is the Father in heaven's heart for his sinful children coming home. That's his heart. But there's another relationship that Jesus is eventually getting to in Luke 15. It doesn't end with the Father celebrating with the other son. This story ends with the exegesis of the Pharisees. The relationship between the older son and the father and the older son and the younger brother. That son that didn't take the inheritance and run off, but stayed home. The, the rule-keeping son. The good older brother son. I'm an older brother. I have a younger brother. I can totally relate to this. Luke 15, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music dancing. Huh? What's going on? Hey. Didn't have a party on my calendar, but okay. And he called for one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Now listen to Jesus' narration of the older brother. This is Jesus' explanation, his exegesis of the Pharisees and what they thought and how they acted in verse 1 when they grumbled. But, Jesus says, the other older brother, he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. This is what Jesus is saying about the Pharisees. They're angry. Those who are grumbling that Jesus was eating with sinners, they're angry. They refuse to come into God's fellowship. They refuse to come to Christ. They refuse to rejoice over sinners because they were angry. He couldn't come. He was so angry. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you angry? Are you angry? I mean, are you just just angry about the world and about life and and about what you think is fair and about how people have treated you and about what all the other people are getting and that you don't have, about what all the other other things people can afford, but you can't. 
all the other relationships that other people have, all the other marriages that other people have, but not you. Why is God giving them all those things? Are you angry? You might not even be able to answer at first. We don't like to admit that we're angry. We hide that we're angry. We, we categorize our anger as something else in our lives. We justify our anger. What are you so angry about? Now you might think, oh, we found the problem. Anger's the problem. Th- thank you for pointing this out. Yeah, you know what? I do feel a little bit angry. Thanks for pointing that out. No, Jesus isn't done. The surgery is going deeper into the heart. Verse 29. His father came out and entreated him. (coughs) But he answered his father. Here's Jesus again exegeting the Pharisees. Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You kill the fattened calf for him. What's below the brother's seething anger? In a word, self-righteousness. The belief that I am right I'm a better person than the person over there. The thought that I never need to be forgiven and I don't need to be corrected. The thought that I have done everything right so I deserve praise. I deserve accommodation because I have been following the rules. This is a parable about the heart of God, but it is also a parable about the heart of the brother toward his brother. The older brother towards God But more than anything, the idea of the brother's idea of himself. Self-righteousness. It's an exegesis of the Pharisees' love of their own law-keeping. So see the chain from the root to the fruit. Self-righteousness is down in the gut. It's down in the heart. It shows itself as anger in the emotions, in the expression, and it acts itself out in refusal to join in celebration when Jesus welcomes and offers his goodness to others. The brother is not just upset about what he has not been given. He is upset with the father for giving the brother who doesn't deserve it. And the father just welcomed him right back in. Just brought him in and kissed him and put the ring on him. And and I've been keeping the rules, dad. How dare you just bring him in like that? It's not just anger. Underneath anger is self-righteousness. I don't need my dad to forgive me. I don't need God to forgive me. I'm good. I'm a good person. I do all the right things. Is there in your heart a happy, joyful reception of sinners to your own fellowship your own life, and do you rejoice when they come to Jesus Christ? If not, consider that it's not just moodiness, it's not just anger, but it may very well be self-righteousness. And what really is deep down is not just a broken love for others, not just a broken gentle and lowliness towards others, but what is deep down is a distorted relationship between you and Christ. You don't think you need Christ. You followed all the rules. You don't need forgiveness. They do. And that turns into anger, which turns into, I don't really want to be around them. I don't want to be a part of this. They don't deserve this. And this is the heart of God. This is the heart of Christ. The scandalous disposition, unconditional, 
gentle, lowly reception of sinners into the embrace of God's arms. Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness and salvation of sinners. Pharisees, however, remained outside the celebration because of their anger born out of their own self-righteousness. Friends, lay down your self-righteousness. Realize I need to come to Jesus and I need to be received by Him and I need to be thankful that I am received by Christ when I am the word, one that deserves death and damnation. I deserve God's wrath, but Jesus has welcomed me. Only then can our anger be dissolved and we can actually rejoice when other people come to Jesus too. Otherwise, we are stuck and self-righteous. That's not fair. About everything. Here's an example of what it looks like. I was reminded in an interview this week that I was listening to about Ulysses S. Grant's feelings about the South at the end of the Civil War. When Grant accepted the surrender of Robert E. Lee in April of 1865, Grant offered generous terms that paroled Confederate soldiers and officers and allowed them to return to their homes. He even permitted the men to keep their horses and their mules to go home and start farms. Grant believed leniency was critical to achieving a lasting peace. He was furious when a federal grand jury later negated his terms of peace, the agreement that he had set with Lee. And that jury had charged Lee and several other Confederate generals with treason. During a subsequent meeting with President Andrew Johnson, Grant stated, I will resign the command of the army rather than execute any order to arrest Lee or any of his commanders so long as they obey the law. And Johnson, in no place politically to lose the general of the Northern Army, reluctantly dropped the case. And Lee and all his generals and all the army were free to take their horses and their mules' homes or whatever was left of them. Can you imagine the scandal? The scandal of... You're just going to let Lee go? The feeling of injustice? The, the amount of bloodshed the amount of slaves owned and mistreated and Lee gets to go home? Imagine being a slave in the South. And we've got the Emancipation Proclamation, but then you hear they're just going to send Lee home. <laughs> they just send him home with the horses to go back to his wife and kids. Everything's fine, right? <laughs> I just don't think there was a wave of I'm so thankful they were gracious to him. In his memoirs, this is what Grant said about the day that he met General Lee at Appadamux. He says, I felt anything rather than rejoicing at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and valiantly and had suffered so much for a cause, though that cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which a people ever fought, and one for which there was the least excuse. I'm not sure Grant should have been exalting Lee's valiance, even in this moment and even in this way, but history tells us there's nothing between Lee and the rope on a tree except Ulysses S. Grant's not rejoicing over the downfall of his foe. That is like the scandal of Jesus welcoming us. What business does the co-creator of the world, who created us in holiness and perfection, and we have turned it and sinned against him and shaken our fist and rebelled and committed treason against the king and the God of the universe. What business do we have being told, come on in, all is forgiven. That's what it looks like 
to our own hearts, our own hearts are going to think we're crazy. You're just going to let him go? You're just going to let that guy in traffic go? You're just going to let him go? You're going to let your spouse, you're just going to forgive her? You're just going to be patient with your husband? Let him go? That, that doesn't even feel right because my self-righteousness tells me I'm right, they're wrong, they deserve judgment. And that's not gospel. That's not Christ. That's not the heart of Christ. When that comes out of us, it's telling us something besides the heart of Christ is down in our own guts. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. You came in today, you're like, I, I, just, I don't trust Christ. I don't believe in Christ. I don't, I don't believe in any of this Jesus stuff. Let me just ask you to consider this one thing today, that maybe the heart of God and the heart of Christ is not what you thought it was. Maybe you came in thinking, I don't know what God's like. Maybe you came in thinking, yeah, I already know what God's like. You know, this place is going to burn down if I walk through the front doors. No. Jesus is gentle and lowly at heart. And his welcoming disposition indicates God's love, which God ultimately displayed when Jesus died on the cross for you. God's not sitting back with his arms crossed wondering why you won't get it together. He did the activity of sending his son for you while you were yet a sinner. Would you consider that as what it means to be a Christian? Would you consider that as what the Bible has been trying to tell us on every page from beginning to end? And maybe that's something that you can believe. Maybe today you would, you would just confess and believe in your own heart, yeah, I've been living in self-righteousness. This is better. This is a God worthy of following and trusting. And I want to be forgiven. You can pray that right now. God, forgive me for my sin. I just recognize that I have sinned. And I want to be forgiven today. I want to be welcomed by Christ. I want to quit carrying my own righteousness. And I want to just be thankful that you forgive me. And I believe it because of Jesus' heart and his life and his death on the cross. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not to be Republican. Not to go to church. Not to wear a certain kind of clothes. To believe God loves you in Christ. If you're here today and you're a Christian, put on compassionate hearts. Paul says, Colossians 3, 12 through 13, put on then, having been saved, having been, having been a Christian, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. That's each other in the church. You're going to have to have this for people in the church. It's not like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to put up with politicians as Christians. Well, all of our, no, you've got, you got to put up with each other, <laughs> bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. How do you put on something spiritual? Put on compassionate hearts and kindness. I think what Paul's just saying is do it. Be it. You woke up this morning. Hopefully, you put some deodorant on. Hopefully, you, you, you brushed your teeth. You, you looked in the mirror to, before you went out and make sure my hair is decent. Right? It's not the worst hair today. Paul says, put this on too. Look in the mirror. Go through the closet of Scripture. Put this on. Take this with you. Be like this. Wear this. Everywhere you go, take compassion with you. Everywhere you go, you got your phone, right? You don't ever leave home without your phone. Take compassion with you. Take it everywhere you go. Be that. Wear it. Be, be so intimately engrossed in having a compassionate heart, being humble and meek, that you could say, that's what I'm wearing. I'm in it today. Be compassionate, meek, patient, gentle, lowly. Don't be angry. Don't live angry. Don't let self-righteousness turn into anger and separate you from fellowship with brothers and sisters. That's what it means to be a Christian, to grow in gentleness, to be transformed more into Christ-likeness over time. Listening to a sermon this week by a guy named Paul Washer. And he said... Several years ago, I was doing a marriage conference in Russia, which I just, I want to hear that story. How did you get connected to a pastor's con or a conference on marriage in Russia? And when was this exactly? And 
Where, anyway, I had to preach somewhere, he says, around 18 to 21 sermons that week on marriage, which is such a Paul Washer thing to say. You know, how's the conference? Well, I preached 21 sermons. Of course you did. 18 to 21 sermons that week on marriage. I had gotten into, I don't know how many sermons, but we were well over halfway. And one of the leaders came up to me and said, Brother Paul, you have not yet preached on marriage. And Paul said, I know. What have I preached on? The leader said, the fruit of the Spirit. Paul, said, or Paul Washer said, so if I had a man who knew well all the principles of marriage, but he's not filled with the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit None of the principles are going to matter. But if I have a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, he's going to do all right in marriage. Paul says nothing, Paul Washer, nothing can take the place of transformation. Christians, we don't just need to do more things in the church. Nothing takes the place of transformation, of putting on compassionate hearts of growing in Christ. Nothing is better than that. I'm serving on 14 committees. Who cares if you're angry all the time? It's not the same. That's why discipleship is so important. Opening our Bibles together in our life groups on Thursday night and Friday night and Tuesday morning and the brother that you're meeting with to pray with on Tuesday evening or the woman that you're having breakfast or coffee with or tea with or just the the text prayer partner that you have with someone in the church. Why is it so important? Because it is helping transform us. When we open up the Bible, it helps renew our minds. It's like downloading new software. It's like getting me from old thoughts to, to new thoughts. You know, this week I was sick at home, and one of the days I, I think I watched three westerns, three western movies. I was in that place where I was like, I, my eyes hurt too bad to read, but I'm too awake to uh, not do something. So I'll just kind of fall asleep in and out with some westerns on. I love a good western. Wake up the next day and try to start reading about gentle and lowly. And it was like an estuary in my heart where salt water meets fresh water. Like, <laughs> gentle, you've never seen a Western called Gentle and Lowly that was any good. It's not, it's not the best part about Westerns, right? There is no Western hero who pulls his gun out and says, well, let's hug it out, bro. <laughs> it just doesn't make good movies. But I found, like, I'm just like, man, that, isn't this just like every day in my life? I, keep, I put all this in, and now that's in there, and then I want to put gentle and lowly in, and I realize this salt and fresh water, it don't mix. Something has to be emptied. That's what it means to open up God's word over and over, to go to listen to sermons, to gather with the church, to pray with one another. Let's get salt water out, let's get fresh water in. Be transformed. So what actually flows out of my heart, what's actually down in my gut, is the gentleness and lowliness of Christ. This transformation leads us to evangelism. You won't share the gospel if you're angry. You will not share the gospel with someone that you are angry at. You won't share the gospel if you're just an angry person. It's not going to happen. If... One of the main roots of anger is self-righteousness. You're not going to go tell other people about be welcoming to Jesus and his grace and his mercy towards sinners. You don't want to do that because that's condemning to you and your own self-righteousness. You're the older brother. I don't want anyone else coming to the party. I don't want anyone else being welcomed. And I'm living in my own self-righteousness. You can't share the gospel angrily. It's the exact opposite of the disposition of the person of Jesus Christ. How can you tell someone about a gentle and lowly Christ who welcomes sinners when you're angry? Could you share the gospel with a, a Democrat or a Republican, with a black person, with a terrorist, with someone from any other country, with the neighbor who's on the HOA board? Unwillingness, refusal, distaste for telling people about Jesus, where does that come from? It's not just boldness, it's not just disobedience. The refusal to enjoy other people coming to Jesus and telling people about Jesus begins in the enjoyment of Christ yourself. It's the heart of all reconciliation. Why would I ever go to my spouse and apologize? Why would I ever go to my neighbor and say, I, I need to make this right? Why? Why would we ever do that? Because Jesus 
welcomed us. And I know what that's like. And I love it so much, I want to enjoy it with everyone around me. It's the heart of evangelism. It's the heart of reconciliation. It's Christ's heart. I'll close with this thought, what it looks like. On December 3rd, just last year, Officer Richard Houston of the Mesquite Police Force was shot and killed when responding to a domestic disturbance call. Just a few days later, December 9th, Lake Point Church in Rockwall, Texas, his 18-year-old daughter, Shelby, shared a eulogy. Here's what she said. I remember having conversations with my dad about him losing friends and officers in the line of duty. I've heard all the stories that you can think of. She says, but I've always had such a hard time with how the suspect is dealt with. Not that I didn't think there shouldn't be justice served, but my heart always ached for those who don't know Jesus. This 18-year-old at her own father's funeral I always ache that they didn't know Jesus, their actions being a reflection of that. And I was always told that I would feel differently if it happened to me. But as it happened to my own father, I think I still feel the same. There has been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion. Part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father. But I can't get any of my heart to hate him. All that I can find in myself, all that I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. I thought this might change if the man continued to live, but when I heard the news that the man was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road, I would get to spend some time with the man who shot my father, not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, simply to tell him about Jesus. Let's pray. And Father, we give you thanks and praise. You don't scold us, you're not only angry at us, but you actually have love for us. We recount and we recall our own sin, maybe this morning, maybe last week, maybe 30 years ago. And we just give you praise that despite our sin, you would still welcome us that you would still provide Christ on the cross, that we could be forgiven and come to you and be embraced by you and be forgiven of our sin, be in fellowship and be reconciled to you. Thank you, God. Father, if there are ways in our heart, if there are, if there are people on our minds, organizations, if there's events that we still have anger towards, Father, would you help us to see if maybe there's not self-righteousness down in our hearts that has let us become angry and so refuses to rejoice in others being saved? And would you so help us to make reconciliation? Would you so help us to share the gospel with others, rejoicing and loving when the worst sinner would come to Christ would you help us have the heart of Christ? Church, I invite you to take just a moment to reflect and pray as God has spoken in his word how you might take this and apply it to your life this week.
Father, help the men in our church be gentle and lowly men. Help the women in our church be gentle and lowly women. Help the children that we are raising in church to grow up, to be gentle and lowly young men and women who glorify you and reflect the heart of Jesus Christ to everyone around us. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.